near the station. Okay, six minutes after 10 o'clock on this Friday, the 18th morning of the ninth month of the year of our Lord, 2020. It's rare that we will forego the Ronald Reagan top of the hour open, but we wanted to make sure we have more time rather than less for our guests because the topic we are discussing as I spent the entire first uh, 30 minutes of the program discussing is this is that important. Uh, nice choice of music there, by the way, the white room and the black curtains. We are talking about white and black. We're talking about black and white. We're talking about... Uh, the Ohio School Board of Education adopting a resolution this past summer that is going to allow the implementation of the 1619 project into Ohio public school curriculum. The 1619 project and more elements of critical race theory, which is an extraordinarily dangerous and biased, divisive uh, uh, training that has been provided and has been forced upon many people in corporate America and until President Trump issued an executive order banning the implementation of critical race theory training on federal government officials, the military, and even NASA, it was being pushed upon them as well. Now, the name or the uh, uh, actual language of the proposal, the resolution that was adopted by the Ohio board earlier this summer is headed resolution to condemn racism and to advance equity and opportunity for black students, indigenous students and students of color. And as I said at the top of the show, the language is flowery because who could possibly say I am opposed to equity and opportunity for black students and students of color who could possibly be, be opposed to condemning racism. So they've done the same thing that Black Lives Matter has done. They have made it impossible to say, I oppose this on its face without people looking at you and saying, well, then clearly you are a racist. But the devil is in the details. And joining us now to discuss this are two principal opponents of this educational curriculum, two members of the Ohio Board of Education, our friend Lisa Woods, who is also the proprietor of McFam, Medina County Friends and Neighbors. We hear from her several times each month talking about those great meetings in Medina. Lisa, good morning. Thank you for coming on. How are you? Good morning. I am well. Thanks. And uh, your colleague on the Ohio Board of Education, Sarah Fowler, who joins you in your opposition to this resolution and joined you in a long, long protracted fight over this before the vote this past summer. Uh, Sarah, thank you for coming on. How are you this morning? I'm well. For having us, Bob. We appreciate it. It's a pleasure. We're going to hear from both of you for these next uh, 21 minutes. And then uh, Peter Kirsten, I was going to join all of us with his thoughts on this. He is working on your behalf as well. Uh, I want to start with just a statement from you, Lisa, and, uh, and, and talk about where this came from and, and also about that protracted battle. I know you tried very hard to delay a vote on the adoption of this resolution in the meeting a couple of months ago. Uh, we're unsuccessful in doing so. But So give me your, your first just opening statement about what this curriculum is and why it's so dangerous. Well, we know that um, shaming certain kids and others, you know, making them feel that they are uh, victims, uh, that, that's a terrible thing to start with on any age. And to tell children, um, you know, K through 12, right off the bat that they're, they should be shamed or that they're a victim is poison and so i you know of course we're we're very be, concerned be, spe- about be specific this. lisa if you could be, be specific who are we talking about you mean on on the uh on well the when you're talking about your, no we're talking about what you just said you just said that telling kids shaming them and telling them they're victims i think those are two opposite things i think the goal of this curriculum is to shame white children and to teach black children that they're always victims or indigenous or people of color or whatever that they're always victims of a, supre- a white supremacist and systemically racist country 
So I just want to be specific. What we're talking about here is is curriculum that teaches uh, white children that they are inherently bad, that they are inherently evil. They are part of a white systemic culture uh, and a white supremacist culture that they benefit from, that their black colleagues in their classrooms do not benefit from, and they should be embarrassed by that. They should be ashamed, and they should apologize for that. A- absolutely. It, it's it, Like I say, it's poison. And even if your school uh, chooses not to use this curriculum, the schools that do are, and it's going to pit these kids against each other and create violence. It, it's, it's toxic. That is very, very true and very much a concern. You know, that's the funny part about this, Sarah, is I'll get your first statement on this, too. You know, do they honestly expect black and white to come together by teaching blacks your victims all the time and whites? You are the perpetrators of those crimes and the victimization of black people. Is that going to make them hug one another? Is that going to make for some serious, you know, uh, resentment between the two? Well, we've already seen that in some of our local districts in this area, too, where um, it makes it a divisive issue. I had a woman of color reach out to me and she said, hey, I grew up in this predominantly white district. I raised my kids here, and we were always loved and accepted in the community. However, with the predominance of this conversation, there's now become a tension and a distrust that hasn't been there before between both parties, and that makes it a lot more uncomfortable and difficult to talk about those conversations that we should be having, which are how do we treat everyone equally under the law? How do we make sure that you have equal opportunity? And for me, that is probably one of the biggest issues I have with Resolution 20 was from July was that the focus was on equity of outcome rather than equity of opportunity. And mm-hmm. we want students of all backgrounds, all religions, all races, all ideologies to have equal opportunity. We want them to be able to pursue their dreams and their goals and to excel in whatever areas they're gifted in. However, when we say that everyone has to achieve at the same level, it doesn't matter if we're talking about even students of of one particular background. Not every student is going to achieve the same level in everything because that's not how we're made. And so I feel that that is probably one of the most systemic issues in that resolution is that we say from the get-go that all children should be able to do the same thing and be good at the same thing, and they're not. They're individuals that have specific gifts and talents that are unique to them, and that should be furthered so that they can pursue their dreams and goals, and that will help us to build a stronger society that loves and appreciates one another rather than pitting us against each other. I think that is very well said. Sarah Fowler, member of the Ohio Board of Education, I think what you just said is very important. Uh, we should not be trying to equate um, you know, uh, equal uh, outcome with equal opportunity. This is not supposed to be about the outcome. It's about the opportunity. And Lisa, let me go back to you, Lisa Woods. You know, Part of the language of, of Resolution 20 <clears throat> includes, quote, whereas gaps between test performance of black indigenous people of color uh, uh, and indigenous people of color students um, I'm sorry, indigenous and people of color. The language is so weird and I'm so tired of saying it. Maybe why don't we just say minority students? 
Um, whereas the gap between test performance between minority students and their white peers has been observed since Ohio began disaggregating the data, and whereas progress to close these gaps has been uneven and unsatisfactory, and whereas a culturally responsive curriculum reflects the history and background of all students and empowers students to value all cultures, not just their own. And research has shown that a culturally responsive curriculum can motivate students of color to higher level of academic achievement. So that's a lot of stuff there, Lisa, but you understand its point. They are saying that we're teaching the kids the wrong things. We're teaching them American history, which is largely white American history, and that's why black students have no interest in learning it. I think the wording there was motivation in learning it, and we'll get better results for them by changing the, the curriculum into black curriculum, if you will. Right. And, you know, it always has the opposite effect of what they think they're trying to produce, right? So when, when certain schools are going to uh, give a different type of history, how on earth does that connect us? How will that unite the black and white population? It, it, it's, again, it doesn't make sense. We're not addressing the actual issues of why these kids aren't testing better. And if I can jump in on that, Lisa um, and Bob, it really is, you know, it came out in the conversation around issue, uh, I'm sorry, Resolution 20, that we were discussing the 1619 project as that curriculum, whereas the resolution doesn't specifically say that, that was, um, what testimony was received on and what board members discussed. And um, there are a lot of concerns by historians across the country that it presents a one-sided view of our past focused on the negatives, and we want to present a balanced viewpoint of history so that we can learn from our mistakes and grow from them, not live in them and be unable to move forward. Very well said, both of you, Lisa Woods and Sarah Fowler, members of the Ohio Board of Education. We're talking about Resolution 20 in the Ohio curriculum. Now, remind me, Lisa, what happened uh, during this vote? There was, I don't know, you guys were at it for like 11 straight hours or something crazy as you tried (laughs) to... Go ahead. It was worse than that. Actually, we started at the 11th hour, and I think we finished at the 14th. Is that right, Sarah? Uh, I don't know. My committee started at 9 a.m. That particular discussion. Session, though we ended at eleven fifteen p.m. I think so nine a.m. Right. to eleven fifteen p.m. is a very long day. <laughs> the, right, the discussion on what became known as um, voting item number twenty because it was the last voting item mm-hmm. started at around eight o'clock, and it went back and forth, and the vote was uh, just around eleven o'clock. And we did ask for more time. Uh, there was uh, a, a vote on whether or not we could postpone it till September to mm-hmm. have more, you know, time to for careful consideration and more witnesses. Um, but that, right? That didn't I- win. Yeah, and more witnesses. Uh, Peter is going to join us at uh, 1035, uh, ladies. And I know Peter wanted to be a witness, could not get there at the time that you guys were having this. So he asked uh, if they would uh, postpone this, as you guys did, until September so that more witnesses could be heard. Is there an opportunity to do that now, starting on Monday at the meeting? Yeah, because in a lot of ways, uh, we were all blindsided by this version of the resolution. We have a policy on the board that you are supposed to present your resolution one month prior, 
and that gives everyone an opportunity to review it, to look at it, ask questions, dig into the material, and a completely different resolution was proposed in June than what ended up in our materials um, for the July meeting about a week before uh, the voting. And then there were so many amendments taking place via the Zoom, uh, well, it's not Zoom, but the online virtual platform that the meeting was taking place over that there was a significant lack of clarity on what actually was ending up in the language to the point where three or four days later, we were still receiving emails from staff trying to figure out what the exact wording of approved amendments was so they could send out the final version. That was after the vote. That's incredible, right. and, and and it sounds incredibly uh, illegal, uh, or at least against the, uh, the the bylaws of the school board. Um, Lisa, I w- well, actually, I tell you what, it's 19 minutes after the hour. We'll take a quick time out here. I want to come back and talk more specifically about some of the language in this resolution which was passed, and see what we can do about that, uh, because they seem to be blaming in some cases here opportunities for people of color in certain schools and yet those same individuals are against school choice and allowing those kids to get better opportunities at different schools i want to get your thoughts on that as we continue we're talking about the importance of uh, accurate historical curriculum being presented to your students in ohio public schools with lisa woods and sarah fowler of the ohio board of education and we'll be right back <laughs> well played. Well played, DJ Barrett. Uh, 1024, thanks for being with us on the Bob France Authority. Uh, Lisa Woods and Sarah Fowler back with us. Uh, they're going to be with us for the entirety of this hour. Uh, they're members of the Ohio School Board. And, um, Lisa, I want to go back to you as we discuss Resolution 20, uh, which was passed uh, against your objections and, and Sarah's objections and others to condemn racism and advance equity and opportunity for minority students, essentially, is what it says. And I want to go to some of the language here, Lisa, and get your response to this. It says, whereas black male students lag far behind their white counterparts in several measures of educational attainment, including graduation rates, which keep gainful employment out of reach, and whereas starting as early as preschool, black male students are affected disproportionately by suspensions, expulsions, and zero-tolerance discipline policies at schools, And whereas separate but equal is no longer the law of the land, but systemic inequity in education has relegated millions of children of color to under-resourced, struggling schools. I'll stop there because, Lisa, what I want to ask you is, what does any of that have to do with the way the actual students are treated and the opportunities that they are given? Are they being given different, different curriculum? harder curriculum, more advanced curriculum, tougher math problems, more difficult uh, uh, English books to read and understand, more difficult science labs to do. Are minority students being given different things than white students are? Because unless they are, the graduation rates are not the issue here. It is the opportunity and the performance that is the issue, right or wrong? Yes, you already answered the question. That's exactly right. Um we would have to, to to make them equal. We would have to bring uh, those that are achieving down to that level. But if we if we talked about the real problems, how we could advance kids in these um, poor uh, communities, and and it's not because of the color of the skin. I've been out to East Cleveland City Schools and had an incredible tour and, and met 
outstanding people that were doing their best to help these kids. People don't understand. East Cleveland City Schools are the four, it, it, it's the fourth poorest district in the United States. So we can't even um, compare that to another area in Ohio. And the, the kids there are smart. I, I, I sat down with a whole group of, of children, and they really opened their minds and hearts to me, and, and it would make you cry. They are dealing with such severe, you know, uh, trauma in their lives. And they're being tested, you know, the same way. But how can, how can you test when you just saw your brother shot two weeks ago on the streets or, you know, unimaginable things? Um, these kids need more time. That had nothing to do, that had nothing to do with schools, right? I mean, they, right. or, or an, an equal opportunity. It, that's, the, that's the important absolutely. part of this. And, and, and I met all the, you know, folks that are desperately trying to help, but yet we, you know, uh, the, Oh my gosh, it's really emotional. Well, let, let me let me bring Sarah in here, Lisa. Let, 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 Thank you. Yeah, let me bring Sarah in to get her thoughts on this too. Sarah, I was talking also about school choice. Um, for those who are claiming that, oh my goodness, there is such a disparity in opportunity for students of color because the schools are worse. And in fact, I want to read the next language in the resolution after the part about uh, uh, a separate but equal no, no longer being the law of the land, but systemic inequity in education has relegated millions of children of color to under-resourced struggling schools. But the next line is important, Sarah. Whereas significant gaps between the performance of black students compared to their white peers exist even in the generously resourced schools. Does that not indicate that it's not about the schools or the quality of schools? If the minority students are underperforming compared to their white counterparts in no matter what kinds of schools that there are, doesn't that point to something else rather than schools, perhaps family structure? Absolutely. I, I think that you hit the nail on the head in referring to family structure because I have known uh, many families, as Lisa said, that are um, African-American, that have a white background, and they have come through uh, many struggles in poverty as a family and done very well. But there are other students who do not have that same support structure, regardless of their skin color, that uh, suffer and that really struggle to perform well. And Uh, I forget what the study name was, but when I joined the board, there had been a study conducted um, that was available through the Department of Education's website at the time talking about uh, the inequities in outcome being more largely focused on the students' expectations at home and whether or not they had a supportive adult in their life than on any other factor that we can um, look to. Obviously, the education quality that they're receiving in the school can be a component of that, and I've been a longtime supporter of parents choosing uh, the best education option for their child. And uh, many schools that are struggling do uh, have an alternative option available to them, and many parents do choose that. But we also have great teachers getting into those poor areas, like Lisa said, in East Cleveland and others that are Mm -hmm. there because they want to make a difference. That is the number one reason that I know uh, for people going into teaching. They want to make a difference, and they don't care whether or not the child is of a background or ethnicity. They want to see them achieve at the best of their ability, and that's what we should be focused on. 
not on rewriting history, not on um, trying to dictate let me stop you there let me stop you there sarah your pause gives us a good place to stop because rewriting history is what the 1619 project does and while the 1619 project is not specifically listed in resolution 20 it is where this is headed and that is not history it is fiction it has been proven so by countless numbers of historians of all races that is not accurate but it's coming to our school so i want to save it for the next segment peter kirstenau will join us he's going to talk about that along with sarah fowler and Lisa Woods, our two members of the Ohio Board of Education, as we continue this very important conversation on AM 1420 The Answer. There are two sides to every story. There's the mainstream media side, and then there's the truth. You are experiencing the truth. The Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. All right, 1036, we continue now on AM 1420. The answer with our two guests from the Ohio Board of Education. And I'm hearing a little bit echo. Okay, I think we're okay now. Uh, Lisa Woods, and there it is again. Lisa Woods and uh, Sarah Fowler are back with us to continue our discussion of the Resolution 20, which is the curriculum that is going to be forced into Ohio's public schools, essentially adopting the 1619 project from the New York Times Magazine, uh, uh, which they allege is, is supposed to be historically accurate, at least to a point. Um, and talking about the uh, critical race theory and elements of that being instituted in Ohio schools as well. Also joining us this segment, in addition to Lisa and Sarah, is Peter Kersenau, who is a member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights and who desired to testify as an expert witness before the Ohio School Board when they adopted this this past summer. And uh, he was unsuccessful in getting there or pushing it to a September decision. But he's here now to talk about the importance of this curriculum being uh, squashed, if you will. Peter, good morning. Good morning, Bob, and thanks for the great bumper music, and thanks to uh, Lisa Woods and Sarah Fowler, who are warriors in this. This is extremely important. I've identified this topic, and Bob, you and I have talked about it, and thank you, Bob, for the mm-hmm. forum for doing this. Uh, this Peter, is before you start, hands- Peter, Peter yeah. before you start, I want uh, Sarah and Lisa to know that this is going to be an open segment here, so if you want to interrupt Peter and, and follow up on a point or ask him a question or what have you, please do so. This is not just uh, one person uh, at a time. Uh, so, uh, Lisa and Sarah, please feel free to chime in as you wish. I'm going to step out of the way. Peter, go ahead. Yeah, uh, let me get the important stuff out of the way. First of all, this is an all-hands-on-deck situation. Uh, we identified this a long time ago. Bob, you and I, I mean, the first day 1619 Project was enunciated by the, U- the New York Times. I got on, to- on top of this, as did you, and we knew the danger that this posed to the United States. That's not overstating it. Lisa and Sarah have both recognized it, and they're doing yeoman's work to make sure that this kind of toxic instruction doesn't get into Ohio school systems. It's already in nearly 5,000 schools across the country, despite the fact that it's utterly ahistorical. Also, very important, before we get into a discussion, you've got great listeners. I've talked to many of them personally. Uh, I've talked to them, for example, at Lisa's organization. This is one of those things where if you've got five minutes of time, it's imperative that you write, call, email the State Board of Education, and you don't have to say anything 
dramatic, anything lengthy, anything erudite. Simply say, no 1619, something as simple as that. I understand that they issued a statement yesterday saying that there was no intent um, or uh, on the part of the State Board of Education to implement the 1619 project because allegedly they say, you know, the uh, higher revised code gives state, uh, strike that, local boards of education authority and dominion over curricula. All that may be true, but the Resolution 20 is the predicate for the introduction of 1619. We've seen this movie before. We're not going to be fooled by this. This is very important for your listening audience. Again, write, call, email, State Board of Education, no on Resolution 20. If you want to say a little bit more, say repeal Resolution 20. It doesn't have to be anything fancy and say no on 1619. Now, with respect to how bad this is, and to follow up on the conversations we've had, Bob, as I indicated at the outset, this is ahistorical. By that I mean it is founded on fiction, not fact. Aside from the poisonous nature of this and what it will do, and I'm sure you and Lisa and, and Sarah talked about this in the, in the previous segment, this pits races against one another. It divides people on the basis of race. It singles people out for a program on the basis of race. It has a debtor, debtor race and a creditor race. It's, it's just the worst thing you can possibly do. Adults should know better than to introduce this poison into the school system. They're doing it ostensibly for um, laudable reasons. And, and I, I do believe that they think that's the case. I, I'm not casting aspersions on, on the motivations of these individuals. However, we have seen what the effects are visited upon our streets over the last four months, because this isn't the first time we've encountered the 1619 Project or its correlatives. This is something that's been brewing in the Academy for more than 30 years. It's part of critical race, it's an extension of critical race. We've seen it mainly in colleges, but it is seeped into K through 12 also. And um, it, 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 from my perspective, and if you want a little bit more elaboration about this, I think uh, on the web you can find my, my keynote remarks to this year's National Association of Scholars Convention. Uh, we, we have... So many instances where we can point to the historical inaccuracies in 1619. We shouldn't be teaching 2 plus 2 is 7. By the same token, we shouldn't be teaching that the American Revolution was fought to preserve slavery. Not only is that... I, I, can't, I don't even know what to say without uh, using <laughs> language. Peter, this is Sarah. This is Sarah, and I want to jump in on that. It is. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. I'm not sure everyone can hear each other clearly enough. Peter, Sarah, you was just jumping in. Uh, Sarah, go right ahead. Thank you. Um, Peter, I absolutely agree that the um, critical race theory is uh, not focusing on an accurate portrayal of history. And one of the things we discussed in the previous segment that I feel is very important is um, just the reinterpretation as well. And we see this through a lot of the um, racially and politically charged curriculums that are being proposed of, of today. And that is that we don't need nuclear family units, that fathers are no longer essential in the picture. And Studies show that that is absolutely incorrect, that fathers are a very important part of 
how students perform in school and in life. And when we adopt something that is going to undermine that foundation, we are not only rewriting history, but we're rewriting the future in a negative way. Sarah, let me follow up on that and get Peter to respond as well. And then Lisa, um, that part is extraordinarily important to this uh, part of Resolution 20. Um, uh, get, hold on, uh, i got to find the exact uh, language of it here. Um, I'm talk- it's talking about the suspensions uh, and the disproportionate number of suspensions and other um, disciplinary actions that have been taken. Oh, here it is. Whereas starting as early as preschool, black male students are affected disproportionately by suspension, expulsions, and zero-tolerance discipline policies in schools. The rules for suspensions and expulsions and discipline are the same for all races, but does this not point to the absence of that father, Sarah, you just talked about it? It's not just about educational performance. It's about discipline. Uh, in most households, not all, but in most households, discipline is usually left to the father. And when you do have 73 to 75% of young black children growing up in fatherless homes, they are being, you know, they are being raised without that discipline. And if they don't have it in their homes, they're not likely to have it in the schools, respecting the authority figures there. That is responsible for these rates, these disproportionate rates of behavioral uh, uh, actions that are taken, Peter, and you can follow up on that rather than some sort of systemic racism. Well, that, that's precisely right. You know, we've looked at this several times at the Civil Rights Commission. You and I have had this discussion, Bob, but the bottom line is this. Right now, in many inner cities, 85% plus of kids are being raised in a single-parent household. We have the data, and this has been going on for more than 20 years now. We have data that shows that when you correct for single-parent households, in other words, if you take a similarly situated black kid, similarly situated white kid, if they have both have parents in the family, Virtually every disparity that exists between the two groups disappears. That's the biggest controlling factor. Second, kids do better in well-performing schools. And there is copious data that shows that if there is competition injected into schools, those schools perform much better. But what this resolution does is it assumes a negative, and it assumes a falsehood, that racism is pervasive throughout the schools, that some form, the subtext of this is that some form of discrimination is the, is the cause for the disparities in disciplinary rates, in uh, educational outcomes, and that is utterly false. It, 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 I can't say that strongly enough, because if we don't understand that, if we accept this lie, we're going to continue to perpetuate the false remedies, the failed remedies that the left has tried to use now for 40, 50 years and have produced no improvements in educational outcomes for blacks, or as the resolution indicates, BIPOC. By the way, pro tip, whenever you see acronyms like BIPOC or anything else like that, you know that lunacy is about to follow. Just a pro tip on that. But nonetheless, (laughs) I, I will repeat again and again, you've got two people on your line right now that your voters need to vote into office, keep in office, and also other individuals like this, Sarah Fowler, Lisa Woods. It's imperative that we have individuals like this on the State Board of Education. Personnel is policy, and you've got two great personnel on the line right now. But in addition to that, I repeat again, I know Hugh Hewitt says you've got to repeat a book's title seven times. I repeat again, for all of your listeners, take 10 minutes out of your day over the next several days, 
and email right call the State Board of Education. No on Resolution 20, even though that's passed, but you're getting your sentiment across. That's important. And no on 1619. Extremely important. The Soviet Union used to try to insert curricula like this surreptitiously into the school systems. I know this sounds almost like tinfoil hat territory, but they did that. You can look at the Venona cables. They wanted to get something like this into the system because they knew the deleterious effects of having this kind of poison in the system on the United States of America. And what are we doing? We now, after the fall of the Soviet Union, are voluntarily adopting this poison. Yeah, all in the name of racial equity and all in the name of social justice. Peter Kirstenau is with us, Lisa Woods, Sarah Fowler from the Ohio Board of Education. Uh, Peter, people are calling off here and saying, how do I write them? What do you mean? You keep telling us to write them. Who do we write? Who do we call? I literally just did a search. I don't use Google. I use DuckDuckGo. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't purport to uh, promote Google at all. But use your search engine and search Ohio State Board of Education. You will come up with a uh, home page, and literally the second item down under topics is contact state board members. Click state board members. Then you will see the email addresses for every member, including the board president and vice president. Hold the music for a moment here, please, uh, because I'm not done. I want to go to Lisa and ask this question before this segment ends. Lisa, um, the founder of the 1619 Project, Hannah Nicole Jones, has herself admitted and declared that the 1619 Project is not historical. It's not historically accurate. It's about memory. She literally tweeted that this is about memory. And she said, quote, I've always said the 1619 Project is not a history. It's a work of journalism that explicitly seeks to challenge the national narrative and therefore the national memory. The project has always been as much about the present as it is the past. So in other words, how we choose to remember this history is what the 1619 Project is, even though it is not actual history. So what I want to know, Lisa, is did anybody bring that up? This past uh, summer, when was it, in July or June, that you guys voted on this, you know, as we talk about making sure the 1619 Project is never considered for the curriculum, considering that the actual founder of it has admitted it's not historically accurate, it's just how we choose to remember it. You know, prior prior to the July meeting, I had just found out that, that this curriculum was on the ODE website. I had uh, had a conversation with Paolo, our uh, state superintendent, and I asked him um, about that, and it seemed like he didn't know it was on there. And as we were talking, he pulled it up, and sure enough, it's, it's there as a uh, suggested curriculum, and it's been there since November of 2019. And that's where I was trying to prepare to um, bring some people in and talk about the 1619 Project to get that off. But then this resolution that the president of the board put forward in, uh, well, she talked about it in June and put it forward in, in July for the vote. And it absolutely trumped what I was trying to do with the 1619 Project, because not only does this open the doors for that even wider, uh, other things like Black Lives Matter uh, high school curriculum, which there are board members that are pushing to put that in. Yeah, you know, Black Lives Matter curriculum is the sixteen nineteen project curriculum. I mean, literally, they are taken from one another, and uh, and it was and it was coordinated, and uh, uh, the damage here is is potentially devastating, as Peter Kirsten I was laboring uh, to point out. Peter, 
are you, as a part of the Civil Rights Commission, able to do anything with this now, or because the time for expert witness testimony is passed, are you kind of just left to talk about it on the radio? Uh, all I can tell you, Bob, is I am pulling multiple levers with respect to this, and it goes to the highest levels. I'm glad to hear that, Peter. We need you and others like you, especially in positions of authority like this, to uh, uh, champion the effort uh, to make sure that our our curriculum is historically accurate rather than being uh, biased in such a way. Peter Kirsten, I'll thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. I'm going to ask Bob. Lisa. I'm going to ask Lisa and Sarah to stick around for final statements on this uh, right after this time out on AM 1420. The answer. And sometimes it seems that all I have to do is worry. Okay, final segment of the broadcast and of this very important hour uh, with Sarah Fowler and Lisa Woods. Lisa Woods and Sarah Fowler, members of the Ohio Board of Education. Peter Kirsten, thanks as well. Lisa, let me come back to you for the first uh, part of this last segment. Uh, I read all of the whereas clauses in the uh, um, in the resolution, and I want to get to the actions that have been proposed now and, of course, passed with that vote including training teachers to essentially uh, admit their own biases. Further resolve that the State Board of Education shall require training for all state employees and contractors working with the Department of Education to identify their own implicit biases and that they can perform their duties to the citizens of Ohio without unconscious racial bias. So in other words, unless you are trained white teachers, Unless you are trained to understand how racist you really are, you cannot teach without racial bias. It's implicit. It's something you can't even control unless we train you to control your racism. I cannot understand how any teacher in the state of Ohio would 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 go along with that, would abide by that. Lisa, go ahead. It, it's amazing. I, I <laughs> It's almost... I'm almost speechless because when you think about this, these are unfunded mandates as well. So when, when, the, when we're dealing in a world right now in 2020, we've seen so many fastballs coming by. Why are we focusing on this when we have so many other uh, important issues? I think it's a, a horrible distraction. Right now, we should be um, focused on the budget, which, again, how is this going to be paid for? Uh, we have a, a state that has been in a crisis since March. People have lost their jobs. Businesses have gone under. The tax revenues will not be coming in. How is this all going to be paid for? And and why are That's we focusing question. on this when we could when we could truly deal with the real issues of how to help these kids attain you know the the, the basic skills that they need. Well, the, the, the curriculum as it's currently uh, comprised, uh, the curricula as it's currently comprised is, do, is good enough to teach these kids the basic skills they need, the opportunities that they need to graduate and become employed or go to college, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but again, they don't seem to be interested in what is going to help these kids. They seem more interested in social justice and, and taking up the cause of BLM and taking up the cause of the 1619 Project because they really want to, as President Trump said, as Tom Cotton said, and others said, re write American history in, in, a, in a way that will allow them to change America's future. Sarah, your thoughts? But, oh, I, oh, go ahead, Lisa, if you have something, and then I'll jump in. I, sure. I just wanted to add that the board has truly lost its way and no longer understands its mission. Um, 
with uh, the board president is so focused on the propaganda that she doesn't even want to deal with the real issues of the day that affect black kids or any other. So I just wanted to add that in. Yes. Unfortunately, that came through loud and clear, quoting from the resolution. It said, not only necessary to eliminate bias, but also, quote, ensure that America's white supremacy, racism, and the struggle for equality are accurately addressed. So right there, you're talking about um, the social justice aspect of rewriting our history to um, fit a particular narrative. And I agree with uh, what Lisa said about mandate, but I also believe that it's coercive to local school districts to try to uh, push this through the state board because state law prohibits the state board of education from dictating any particular curriculum. We are responsible for model curriculum that districts can adopt and follow, but they are ultimately responsible at the local level for selecting the curriculum that students learn. And when we say from the state level that um, they're promoting racism if they don't adopt the particular uh, curriculum that we believe is going to um, be better. We are using coercive measures to force an agenda on local school districts. Well, they are promoting racism by even considering the application and the adoption of this resolution. Like I said in my first question to wrap this segment up, any teacher, any teacher who is being told automatically, you are racist and you cannot teach our kids without being racist unless you have training, I would be absolutely opposed to that. I cannot believe any teacher would go along with this and I would fight, fight, fight. I know you're fighting, Sarah Fowler. I know you're fighting Lisa Woods on the Board of Education. Thank you so much for doing that, for carrying on that fight, and thank you for joining us to share the information this morning. Be well this weekend. Good luck on Monday. We'll see you later. Bye-bye.